Welcome to the Trailbreaker Podcast. I'm Aaron Feinberg. In this podcast, I explore what it takes to be a trailbreaker through intimate conversations with people carving new paths across the landscape of business, art, and sport, we dig in on how to excel across seemingly disparate endeavors. What drives people who manage to succeed multidimensionally? Is it how they think? Is it meticulous planning and follow through? Or is it some measure of delusional optimism? My guest today is Laura Taco, a technology consultant and former VP of engineering. She spent her career helping teams build software using cloud-native technology and now partners with growth stage startups to help them achieve their goals. We talked about how she assembled her leadership Voltron, also known as her strong woman squad, why it's important to know how to structure your thoughts and also plan backwards, and how when you stick out like a sore thumb, don't be afraid to stick out. Good morning, Laura, and thank you very much for joining the show today. Yeah. Hey, Aaron. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And we've known each other for a number of years now, and Mm -hmm. I've watched as you have moved through the tech world in getting progressively higher roles in engineering. Could you start us off a little bit by sharing what some of those roles have been for you? Yeah. So I am a former VP of engineering. Recently, I've shifted gears and I'm doing um, consulting as a CTO, VP of engineering, advising, scaling startups. But before that, I was a software engineer. I moved into leadership. I did director, senior director, and then eventually made it up to VP um, before before switching gears pretty recently. And in terms of the path up the ranks, what have you encountered that supported you to make each of these progressive leaps? And, and I bring this up in, because I think there's obviously a lot of important conversations that have been happening and continue to need to happen around how women in tech uh, get into higher and higher positions. And, and obviously there's issues with uh, the pay gap and there's issues with the way that folks are treated. And so just in terms of how you've been able to, to make those gains, what could you share with us about that? It's a really multifaceted answer that I could give because there's so much meat kind of in in each of those parts. Um, I certainly didn't get to a VP level on my own. I had a lot of really supportive people around me. One thing that is really important, it was to me, is to seek out people both in my company and outside of my company. Um, I think if you're depending on your direct manager or your group of peers or someone internal to your company to be responsible for providing you opportunity for your career growth, it's only going to take you so far. Um, And there's this concept of assembling your manager Voltron, um, which comes from Lara Hogan, who was a a great VP of engineering at um, at Etsy, and she does consulting now. But um, her philosophy is that you need to sort of assemble um, like your your Voltron of people around you from maybe different industries or maybe even the same industry, same company, but get get those people around you, find your find your folks, find your circle that can kind of support you and lift you up. I have my my girl squad that I, you know, we have a back channel on WhatsApp every time um, you know, we have a big meeting or big presentation. But that was been that's been really pivotal to me to kind of get that support um, and give myself the confidence that I can kind of push myself up to the next level, um, even if I don't quite believe it myself until I hear a little bit of cheerleading from those folks. Where do you find the women who are on this girl squad? 
you know, obviously there's probably some folks you, you may have known organically, but then did you seek others out or, or was it just a, a, you know, some other process? Yeah, it kind of happened organically through being involved with tech communities. Um, I've been an, a speaker at conferences all over the world. Actually, it kind of sounds bizarre to say that, but it's true. Um, I never would have, you know, my 15 year old self never would have believed that. But um, when you are in these community events, you're going to come across all different kinds of people from all different kinds of uh, industries, from companies, different roles, um, and kind of after a few of them, you kind of start to see the same faces um, because, you know, everyone's there kind of doing the same thing, supporting each other, cheering each other on and friendships form, even though you see each other maybe once every six months or once every year. So that's sort of how my, a lot of my friendships that I, are still incredibly strong, both personal friendships and professional relationships have formed is through engineering communities, tech communities, where we see each other at events um, and kind of become parts of each other's inner circle because we know that we can rely on each other and it's all about showing off your work and, and just being the best of the best at these events and when I see someone doing something really excellent I just want to bring them in and get keep them close to me. And in terms of how you got to these events as a speaker what was that process or path like? That was a lot of learning <laughs> that's a I think public speaking is something that people just don't enjoy in general. <laughs> um, and But also something that fortunately, even if you don't enjoy it or feel like you're not good at it, it is something that you can learn how to do really well. Um, and I think public speaking to me goes in the category of teaching um, and just being, being a great communicator. And I think those skills are really um, hard to come by, quite honestly, in tech. Um, there's a lot of really awesome developer advocates and, and dev evangelists who kind of make their whole living on uh, being a technology communicator um, or like a technical writer. But when it comes to, you know, people at product companies or people who are really deep in the tech, um, you kind of get the stereotype of like the developer sitting in the basement kind of like clawing away at their keyboard. Um, unfortunately, that stereotype exists for a reason. Um, so I have Although I went through the ranks of like engineer into leadership, ultimately up to VP before that, I have a lot of varied experience that kind of gave me a breadth of skills. One of them being public speaking and teaching that allowed me to kind of latch onto it and, and use that to set myself apart. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Uh, I think what you were sharing about the girl squad and then getting yourself in front of folks in, in, in conferences and speaking events is super helpful. And I want to hear a little bit more about whatever tips, tricks, path uh, mm -hmm. forward that you had, but tell us a little bit about what your teaching background is all about. Yeah, I, um, I mean, this, the, the theme of this podcast is trail breaking and, um, I had a very straight, kind of a straight path when it, when I got into engineering and had that engineering title and, sh you know, shot up to VP of engineering, now doing consulting. Before that though, there was lots of like twists and turns and a lot of trail breaking. I kind of felt like I was, you know, dropped in a forest in some ways with a parachute and a jackknife and kind of had to forge my way out. But I have a degree in liberal arts. So I came from a, a really small town where it wasn't accepted. It wasn't very common for girls to be encouraged to do 
science or STEM. And I, in fact, was very explicitly told by a teacher when I was in uh, middle school or early high school that, you know, I'm a girl, I should really focus on my communication skills and social studies, even though I had been doing advanced math and a bunch of science stuff and, and gone to science camp um, at that point. So a bit bizarre why that was kind of prescribed to me and, and I didn't know better to, to fight back. My parents didn't know better to fight back either. So um, I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin and, and have a, a degree in communication arts and history, which has given me lots of breadth. Um, and then after that, I joined Teach for America and I did classroom teaching. So that is quite unrelated to coding um, and quite unrelated to technology. But what I learned when I was a teacher is just simply how to teach someone something new and how to structure thoughts, how to plan backwards from a goal. And those are things that even to this day, I reference that and pull those tools out of my tool belt. And I think that that varied experience because I wasn't just on, you know, go to school, get a computer, computer science degree, join Microsoft or whatever company as a junior engineer, and then work your way up because I have that different background. I'm able to kind of have, um, some other tools in my tool belt that help me in different ways, um, and kind of set me apart from some of my peers. And so take us through what those skill sets or those tools look like when you're in a VP of engineering role. So how do you leverage them? What, what do you do that makes you stand out? Yeah. VP of engineering is a really, um, it's a really unique technical role because it kind of has more in, I mean, it has more in common with other executives at the company than it does with an engineer who's spending all day coding. When you're at the VP level, you are not coding at all. Um, and in some days you might just, you might never look at code, quite honestly, you're focused on much higher, more strategic level kinds of things. Um, your job though, is to be that interface of the engineering team to the rest of the company, to the rest of the executive team, which means that you need to take something that people generally feel is difficult to understand, which is coding stuff and figure out a way to make your peers understand it. And then on the other side, also find a way to make your engineers and your engineering teams understand the business goals and how their work feeds into it. So it's a lot less about, you know, finding the next cool JavaScript framework or whatever open source library. And it's more about um, kind of figuring out what's the right message for the receiver um, and how are, how are you going to tee up that that thought or that strategy or that goal that you need to communicate, how are you going to do it to make sure that your audience is actually going to be able to receive it and act on it? Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And, and then take us backwards a little bit before you were in the VP position, you were obviously using some of these same skills, but at different levels in the company where, where maybe you were coding more, or you were dealing with more technical things day to day. What did these skill sets look like in, in those environments? Yeah, coding day to day, I find to be really enjoy enjoyable. Um, it, you get that immediate payoff, but you're in your own little world in a lot of ways, unless you can connect the, the clever thing that you're doing to a bigger goal that your team is working toward or that you're like supporting a development community. So for me, that teaching communication, um, you know, people facing part came uh, in a couple ways, one could be leading projects and making sure that we're not wasting time being clever about coding something that actually doesn't matter, um, which is 
happens all too often because I think there is not a great, there is not a great habit or a great track record of excellent communication about business goals happening in engineering. That's one of the things that I really try to change on every team that I work with is making sure that everyone understands each other. Um, and then also, you know, if I am doing something that's on sort of the forefront or the bleeding edge of, of tech, which I have done, um, I was involved in this uh, kind of technological phenomenon called containerization, which is now sort of everywhere. Kubernetes, Docker is kind of at the at the tip of the tongues of of um, of folks, and there's a lot of there's a lot of buzz about it. I was involved really really early in doing some you know stuff that just no one did before. I got there first, or my team got there first, which meant that I it was my job to kind of report on what I found, um, and I did that through conference talks, through blogs. Um, through community events. And I absolutely had to rely on those teaching skills in order to communicate that. And like, you know, without those skills, I could have written something super dense that no one could understand, but that's not really helping. Um, and it would have been some wasted effort on my part. So um, put investing a little bit of time using those, those teaching skills really helped me kind of reach a, a wider audience and help more people in their careers. So interesting. And I want to take us back for a second because you know, we didn't get into yet on how you filled in gaps between, you know, the bad advice of you should not go into something science related or STEM related into obviously you wound up in a place that's very technical and, and uh, STEM related. So where did you go in between educationally or, or to grow your skill set to, to kind of uh, arrive in, in such a tech space? You know, some people are on a path they know what they want from the time they're in like fifth grade. You know, they they want to be a doctor. They want to be X. From I was never that kid. I I never really kind of knew. Um, and then I wasn't. I also wasn't encouraged to to do other parts of you know things that I was good at the the STEM kinds of things. Um, so my path does look quite a lot different. And there's a quote that I really like, which is uh, crossing the river by feeling the stones. So instead of looking for that, you know, that bridge from taking these classes in high school all the way to getting your computer science degree at Carnegie Mellon and going to whatever company to, to work your way up from being a junior engineer all the way into staff engineer, I really had to be creative when it came to forging my own path and kind of every little stone that I was on had to look around and see um, not just where that next stone would get me, but like maybe two stones ahead what I wanted to do. So being very opportunistic and kind of just being very steadfast and determined that, you know, there was a point in my career where I was, I was a teacher and I wanted to be paid full time to write code that's a pretty big leap. And I couldn't make that leap in one, one stone's worth of leap. Um, so my, my step was just to look at, okay, what's adjacent to teaching that's also adjacent to coding. And I ended up finding a role that was learning and technology combined where I was doing web design, I was doing animation, I was doing coding stuff, but in the context of education. And that was an amazing springboard then to just kind of push myself into the next phase the next stone was then getting paid you know being paid full-time as with someone with with developer in my title um so it happened slowly but intentionally at the same time and then how did you develop the skills to to do web design and to do coding uh since you were 
tracking, I think, through that sort of communications education, at, at least at the outset? I am part of the Oregon Trail generation, right? So um, I remember floppy disks when they were actually f- floppy, like not the three and a half inch like hard ones, but like the the wiggly ones. So playing Oregon Trail, um, I had some like very early exposure to computers through games. And in fact, when I was in fifth grade, I took a summer class, which was coding with logo programming language and like manipulating little Legos uh, to drive. Like we could make them drive through drive throughs and like do a bunch of other stuff with with coding. Um, Not a very popular summer program for girls. So I was kind of like by myself, just like me me at my like little nerd life there, but I was living like it was it was my best life summer um, of my fifth grade. So I had some very early exposure to coding um, what, that kind of stuck me like I pun intended, but like the bu- I got bitten by the bug of, of coding. So it was something that I had been interested in and pursued independently since I was very young, um, but I didn't have formal training in it. I actually ended up going back to school after I had finished my bachelor's. Um, I went and enrolled in a master's program to kind of fill in the gaps. Self-taught programmers are oftentimes just as effective, very pragmatic, and can be really, really successful in their careers. For me, especially as a woman, I'm getting questioned about my credentials all the time. I just got sick of it. And I also, for my, for my own self, I wanted to kind of know, like, what did I miss? Am I, am I missing this huge thing that I don't know that I don't know? So I, I did go back to school for computer science to try to fill in those gaps, but it was definitely a mix um, of being a self-taught programmer and then going back to school eventually for computer science that kind of, I get the best of both worlds now. I did both. The, what you describe the stones and, um, you know, the going from the, that job outside of tech and then into, into tech, what did the stones look like once you were, you know, in a directorship and you wanted to move up to, you know, the next level, tell us, a, you know, a little bit about how that sort of stone metaphor played out for you. Yeah. I'm, you know, that stone metaphor is really kind of be an opportunist, And there is so much opportunity on an engineering team or within an engineering organization to do things that are highly visible to teams outside of engineering. So one example, um, especially if you're working in a corporate setting, is ensuring that the rest of your company is equipped and confident to talk about the product or feature that you just shipped. That has not a lot to do with the technical details of how that feature was built, but more about the why, more about the what, and like what you can do with it. And not just describing this feature does X, Y, Z, but talking about, you know, if the user is describing this problem to you, you can connect them with the solution. Um, And those kinds of exchanges do require a lot of technical expertise. You're not talking about code, but you're talking in a very technically fluent way to people not in engineering. And if you can do that without being patronizing to people outside of engineering, you will go so far in your career because you are the kind of person that people want to partner with. And once you get to director level, really, if if you're responsible for a team, you're your sphere of influence becomes not your engineering team, but all of this, this world of peers around you who are also responsible for their own teams, other departments. And you need to, 
you know, get in with those peers and figure out what they need from you to be successful. The more you can make your peers successful, the more success that will come to you. So it is really about being a leader in service to others. And that is kind of the philosophy that I've taken with me. Um, both like do the thing that no one else wants to do because that's what you're probably going to be remembered for. And then just make other people around you look good. When you do that, you're going to look good by, by default. Um, aside from the fact that it's just the right thing to do. And you know, the way you describe things is it, I think fits very nicely with the theme of this whole podcast, which is very much, you know, figure out your path, be brave enough to take the steps, go the directions where, you know, no one else is going or where you feel compelled to go. And, and there's a, there's a positivity, there's an optimism around it. Uh, and there's also these real issues that we talked about at the start of the, of the podcast around, you know, the inequities and the lack of representation in, in at the higher levels in tech or any level in tech mm-hmm. in terms of how you've navigated some of that, some of the less, savory experiences, you know, what would you pass on to, to either other women in tech or other men or anybody who cares about making some change in, in in the direction of what is, is more fair and right. What would you say you've done that you would think would be interesting for people to, to either hear about or replicate? It's not always the easiest advice to follow. Um, And I sometimes have trouble following it myself, but there is, when, when you stick out like a sore thumb anywhere, um, in my case, it's like when someone says te- VP of engineering or technology leader, like I am not what they think of, probably. <laughs> I'm probably not even in the top five of like, draw that person for me. I'm not, I'm not cracking the top five. So, you know, for me, there's only, a, there's only so much assimilation that I can do into my peer group because just when I show up, I, I stick out. The advice that I would give is don't be afraid to stick out. And in fact, it is often your differences, your different background, your different perspective, different training opportunities, educational opportunities, work experience, cross-functional skills like teaching. It's those differences that are going to make you, that's your superpower. That is what is going to to give you that edge over someone who might've followed the path that's well beaten down and just, you know, go from A to B to C because that's what everyone does. Great, there's there's great leaders that come through paths like that. But, you know, that problem solving, scrappiness, grittiness, pragmatism often comes from being the outlier, being the person that sticks out like a sore thumb. So instead of pushing it away and trying to minimize it, just embrace it and champion it as the thing that makes you different and different in a good way from your peers. Excellent. I think that's super important for people to hear is to sort of, sort of lean in to, you know, there's this uh, analogy that somebody shared with me uh, around, you know, when there's conflict or when there's friction or when there's a fight, right. The, the easiest thing to do is to pull away from it and, and, and retreat. And that's when you actually get hit with the biggest power of the punch, right? Because the person Mm -hmm. uh, or the situation can really wind up when you get closer to it, when you get the ability to, to wrap it up and give it a hug or to look it in the eyes and connect with it and, and to stand your ground. I think that it, it takes a lot of the power away or helps you reframe. And, and look, I'm not as a, as a white man, I, I am not in a position to at all give advice in these areas. And so I wanted to throw it back at you you know, when you're up against some of this and it's not feeling so 
positive or awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you keep yourself motivated to, to keep up the, the good fight and to keep up the, the perspective that's going to, you know, work for you? It's hard. Uh, and, and quite honestly, there's no shame of assessing the situation and being like, you know what, this is screw this. This is not for me. Granted, you need to be in a somewhat of a position of privilege to even be able to do that. Um, you need to have that, that cushion to fall back on. You need to have support of a, a support system around you. So I know that not everyone can do that. Um, and there's some great people working in very toxic work environments, just out of necessity. Um, but if you can have a little bit of flexibility, you don't need to endure toxic shit just for the sake of enduring it to put that feather in your cap and say, oh, I'm a woman in tech. I dealt with this harassment. Like It, it sucks. It, you don't have to do it to prove your worth. You shouldn't have to do that to prove your worth. You can say, you know what? Peace out. I'll let y'all do your thing over here. But like I'm out and someone else can can have my talent. Um, there's There's definitely no shame in that. There are times though when when you you are invested and you do want to stick it out and you want to see things change for the better, um, and that's where that like that Voltron uh, of people around you really comes in because chances are you're not gonna get that or you're you're not getting that support from your internal team and you might just need a boost from outside. If anything, just for a sense check to be like, hey, you're not like you're not misinterpreting this. You you don't have crazy expectations this situation really is whack basically (laughs) um you know getting that that assurance from somebody externally can kind of give you that boost of like okay i am in the right here i'm gonna i'm gonna stick this out and i'm gonna do this this and this and if that doesn't work then i'll i'll move on to plan b yeah so tap in the knowledge of the girl squad (laughs) absolutely like behind every bold, daring woman in a, like a a corporate work environment. Like there is a WhatsApp thread asking about, you know, just like needing some cheerleading or asking if her outfit looks okay, or like whatever little thing that you need just to give yourself that like, okay, yep, I can do this. Um, and don't, you know, at first I, I thought it was a mark of honor to like, not need that and not, not need that support because, you know, being someone who sticks out like a sore thumb, or, you know, as a woman in tech, it kind of was a badge of honor of like, no, I'm, I'm forging a path in front of me. I'm breaking trail. I'm doing this all by myself. Um, now I've come to embrace, like, I can do it so much better if I have people around me that are, that are lifting me up as well. It's like that. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, bring someone with you. Um, so I, I like to bring people with me now. Would you share one piece of advice that came to you from this, this strong woman squad that you feel like listeners would be uh, stoked to hear? Oh, there's so many. I think um, one thing that just always st- sticks out and we, we tell it to each other all the time is like, no one is paying as much attention as you think. Um, so if there's something that's going to rock your confidence of like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep or like, Mm, am I talking too fast? Cause I had too much coffee or, or something like all these little things that you can be so self-critical chances are no one else notices them. So that's great. Um, and then on the other hand, the other piece of advice and other just like thing to be reaffirmed is, um, like no one else knows what they're doing. Everyone else is failing 
and trying again. Everyone else is just doing their best as well. Even when you get to top tier exec um, level at, at big companies. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, some people might say like, oh, that's controversial or I'm, I'm smack talking um, accomplished executives. I think, I think they would also be the first to admit that they experiment, they try new things, they fail. I mean, that's what that's what sets them apart is like knowing where to place those bets and having that flexible and adaptable mindset. So if I'm ever failing at something, I just get reminded from my girl squad that like, that's part of the process. And that means the process is working. So we can celebrate each other's successes. We do that. But also when something doesn't go as well, like that's a new data point. And the next time I try it, I have that data point and I'm not going to make the same mistake again. And that's also worth something. You know, you said something just a bit ago that I think is important to dig into a little bit. And it seems it's like this balance between, you know, owning your individuality and the superpowers that make you unique. And, and then also how you elevate other people and how you make them look good without diminishing yourself and, and that there's this balance or that there's room for both of those things to exist underneath one, you know, in one brain. So I don't know if you, can share it all about how you kind of toggle between them or how you read those situations in the moment, or, or if there's any secret sauce that, that folks would, you know, be interested in hearing. I think the abundance mindset has been really important. Um, and it's something that, so I, I grew up from a very working class in a very working class family. I'm a first generation college student. My family was by no means well off when I was a kid. I had lots of very hungry days um, when I was in college where like quite honestly didn't didn't have food or didn't know you know where I was gonna eat next because I was really living on a, a very very tight budget um, and when you when you're in that environment for so long you definitely develop this scarcity mindset where you just if you find a resource you have to latch onto it and just with your claws around it you just do not want anyone else to take that away from you. And it took me a long time, I'm talking like years, decades, to kind of shift my mind to think, you know, applying that to, to my career. If someone else is successful, that doesn't make me less successful. If someone else is successful, that is great. And now I have another awesome person that I can work with and we can become more successful together. Um, and that's that is a really important mindset distinction. It doesn't happen overnight. And it might not even be something that, that you're aware of that you're thinking, you know, it's a zero sum game. If you're, if you're successful, that means I'm less successful. It doesn't have to be like that. So um, lift each other up. Like a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. Is it this, how the saying goes, like apply that to, to your relationships at work and your career. And you're going to, you're going to get a lot farther than trying to do it, you know, all by yourself clawing onto the resources that you have. And in some level, that speaks to this most recent iteration of your career, both both the uh, the abundance and bringing people up and helping other folks succeed as a consultant, but also that stepping stone uh, metaphor you were using earlier. So how did you go from the VP of engineering to then jumping ship and creating your own boat and uh, and now <laughs> kind of floating around and helping helping companies from a slightly different angle? Yeah, I, I am in my own boat now. Have my my paddle that I'm waving around. For me, I'm I'm really motivated by solving hard problems, and that looks a lot of different ways depending on 
what the problem is or what the environment is. When I'm working permanent permanently for, for a company, which is really what I've done in my whole career up until this point, the benefit is that you have the longevity. You can see the problem evolve and kind of twist and turn and you watch the company adapt to different things and you have that sort of like institutional knowledge that comes along with being at a company for for so long and that's that definitely can be an edge and that can be an advantage i've done that for quite a long time built up my career and i've done just like i've seen the same problems over and over i've seen i've done a lot of reps when it comes to okay this we have a performance management problem we have we can't deliver on time we have customers that want this but our engineering team wants to build this it's kind of like the same themes keep popping up and I like a little bit of variety it's, it is the spice of life after all so I decided you know instead of getting that longevity and invested in one company what's it like when I can kind of approach the problem with an outsider perspective uncover things that the current leadership team can't see because they're too embedded in it and then actually you know because I'm also not at the company I have a little bit more leeway to be a bit more authentic um, and to have a bit more backbone and say like you know that's not right or like that's not going to cut it try it again do this instead where it might be a little bit politically difficult uh, if you're a permanent employee so for me my motivation was just you know I want to solve different types of problems for as many different types of teams as possible and switching over to consulting really helps me do that. And the companies that you're currently helping, what would be the range of both maybe of size or of industry, or, or if there even is a, 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 a niche you're focused on? Now, I'm mostly focused on software as a service product companies um, across all sectors and, and really from pre-seed. So we're talking like not necessarily like starving in a basement, hacking on something together and hoping, you know, throwing ideas at the wall and hoping one sticks a little bit more, more developed than that. But early days precede all the way into series B when you really are finding that product market fit, need to ramp up your experimentation, need to ramp up your hiring at that stage as well. You're exploding um, and really at capacity in a lot of ways, both in terms of yeah, how many people you can hire, but also you know, how the, how the hell do you manage, not just from a people management perspective, but now you have, you know, all of these new people, you need new processes, you need just a, a, a maturity level up. And that's really my sweet spot is helping those, those product companies that are in that seed series B um, stage kind of grow from their infancy into kind of t- teenager early adulthood, um, and, and, and go through those maturity bumps. So in addition to just more variety and in both the problems you get to solve and the, and the, the space in which you get to stand when you help solve them and, you know, being able to, to involve yourself day to day with lots of different companies, what other benefits or, uh, what are the best parts about hanging your own shingle now? And just as a business person, you know, outside of, of tech or the specific problems you're solving just holistically in terms of how it's impacted your life or how you're hoping it will. It's wild to have your own company. That's been an interesting journey and something I I don't think I actually quite understood 
everything that entails and, and, and had an appreciation for all the different kinds of decisions that I need to make. Um, you know, before when you're, when you're working for a company, it's pretty clear when you have to be at work. Um, it's clear you have vacation days. There's just like a lot of structure. And right now I'm, it's just myself, um, in my company, it's just me. So all of that stuff that just was taken for granted, uh, it's not there anymore and I can do whatever I want, which is both amazing, but also, uh, a little scary because there's just, (laughs) there's, you know, there's limit, limitless stuff to do. Um, so that was something that I, I have been still learning how to like, you know, figure out when I have to wear my tax hat and, and talk with my accountants and do legal stuff versus when I'm going to write a blog post or when I want to, you know, do some market research on something. So that's been quite an interesting journey. And it's like everything that is around the, the core part of my business, which is obviously providing a service to these scaling startups, but there's so many other things about like, what does it mean to operate a business? Um, especially in, in Austria, which is a, a, co- a country with lots of regulations um, so kind of getting to, to deep dive into Austrian tax law is not something I ever imagined I would do in my life, but here I am. So it's been a learning experience. <laughs> and you're in Austria because you're, you have a husband who's from there. You're an, uh, an expat. And, um, and I think that, you know, how does that culture differ in terms of, you know, the abundance mindset, you know, or the ability for you to start to build a, a squad uh, to support you? And is there the same uh, perspective on sort of the rising tide lifts all the boats? Yeah, Austrian um, Austrian culture is definitely different than American culture. And I think one of the things that I, you know, we talked about how I stick out like a sore thumb in the context of my career, but it like, it penetrates into my personal life as well. I'm, um, I speak German fluently. I have for, for many years, um, I'm married to an Austrian, have Austrian family. So I can, I can blend in pretty well here, but at the end of the day, a lot of what I do professionally and a lot of my personal connections are still very rooted in English speaking culture, um, particularly, um, a lots of ties to, to America just because I work in tech. Um, so that's been, it's a little, a little strange because I operate in, I would say more of a, a British or American way in terms of my expectations of, of myself as a consultant and the clients that I work with as well are mostly in English speaking world, which is very different from Austrian working culture, which is very regimented, you know, six weeks of vacation, all your public holidays, Um, it's not uncommon just to like peace out for two or three weeks in the summer and go on vacation. Hold on one second, Laura. It sounds like our, um, audio got a little bit wonky. Ah, bummer. Oh, there you go. That's better. Okay. I'm not sure. Maybe it was just a glitch in the, in our connection across the pond, but, uh, that, that sounds a little bit better. Yeah. It's a part again, very, uh, timely of (laughs) talking like, you know, when, when we work together, have chats there and we're spanning nine time zones and have to deal with, with yeah, spotty internet connections, which makes everything a little bit more difficult. So um, that's definitely something that's top of mind for, for me as a consultant, being in Austria and working with, with American clients. Um, just to close my thought up about the, the cultural differences, everything is very regimented here. Um, there's, you know, the American, the joke of, 
an American gets surgery and has their away message of like, I'm away for kidney surgery, but I can be reached on my mobile anytime versus the, the European vacation responder, which is like, I'm camping for three weeks. I'll see you in, I'll see you next month. Um, that's sometimes hard to reconcile because the expectations that my family has for me, my Austrian family versus then when I describe it to my American family, can I just get very different reactions of what I'm doing um, based on sort of the cultural expectations, which is, um, it's interesting, can be difficult to navigate at some, at some point. Yes. And uh, yes, families, <laughs> families and, uh, and yeah, blended families or, or extended families, uh, culture, um, new business. Uh, you've got lots of, uh, lots of people to um, try to find the balance with, including a beautiful young child that you have. Um, and so as a, as a mom and a business person, just give us a little sense of, of how that has uh, shifted your world. Yeah, that's, um, I really enjoy consulting and having my own business, both as a mother of a daughter, um, granted she's like a tiny baby who's just worried about drinking milk and, you know, maybe playing with a toy. Um, she doesn't understand any of it yet, but, um, you know, for me, I want to, I want to show her that you can have, be a business owner. Um, you can be very successful in your career and, you know, you have the choice. You can do what you want. If you want to stay at home and be a mom full time, that's great. For me, that's not the choice that makes sense or the choice that I want. Um, so I'm going to do something else. Um, I also like having the flexibility of being able to say, yeah, I'll work on a Saturday and I'm going to take a little bit more time for myself on a Tuesday so we can go to the zoo or go for a hike or, or do something else. And I get to kind of blend and get the best of both worlds of engaging my business mind, but also still being there for all of the little, the little baby moments, which are um, just really sweet. And, I, and I'm glad I have the opportunity to, to hang out with her because she's, she's pretty funny and she's cute. Amen to that. Yeah. So look, Laura, I really appreciate the time that you spent with us today and all of the uh, amazing information you shared. If folks want to shoulder tap you and figure out a way to maybe work with you as a consultant, how do they get a hold of you? You can find me on the internet at lauratacho.com and Taco is T-A-C-H-O, like tachometer, the thing in your car that tells you how many revolutions per minute your engine has but without the meter um or like a taco snack but with an h instead in there so um yeah find me shoot me an email laura at laurataco.com i am accepting new clients right now so very happy to chat if there's a if there's a good fit there i can help take the strain off of a, an overextended leadership team that's seems to be what i'm best at now so would be excited to hear from from you folks amazing so again all the best through the rest of the summer. And uh, thank you so much for the time you spent today. Oh, thanks so much, Aaron. It was a pleasure. Take care. The Trailbreaker Podcast is created by Aaron Feinberg with production support provided by Michael Mori. More interviews and videos can be found at aaronfeinberg.com.